our relationship with nature in general and with food in particular has always been complicated. Even at the mythical dawn of time, as described in the book of Genesis, people didn't fully appreciate where it all came from. Food just grew miraculously in the same way that kids seem to believe that money grows on trees. Adam and Eve didn't know how it all worked, didn't understand why they couldn't eat the fruits of that one particular tree. And well, things have only gone downhill from there. In the Garden of Eden, the produce was plentiful and it was free. Now things are a lot more complex. Industrial agriculture, factory farms, six continent supply chains, fossil fuels, geopolitics, climate change, war. The journey from farm to plate has never been longer. Perhaps we should take a look at how it was all meant to be before things went south. And even if we cannot return to Eden, perhaps we can plant our gardens a little closer to home. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 through 31. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day, Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and may they be in service to your creation. Amen. We usually have the TV on during supper, a little 13-inch screen with rabbit ears and bad reception that sits on a rolling cart. As a young child, I joined my family at the kitchen table, scraping my chair against the yellow linoleum tiles. The television is tuned to the 5 o'clock local news, which is just wrapping up before the latest episode of Wheel of Fortune begins. But it's largely just background noise. The year is 1986. Don't forget to eat your vegetables, my mother dutifully reminds me. My older brother seizes upon this opportunity to torment me. Yeah, don't forget to eat your vegetables, he echoes, though he hasn't even finished his own. I mean, you don't want them to be lonely, he casually adds as he pushes his greens around with his fork. Lonely? What are you talking about? Well, yeah, I mean, you already ate half of that broccoli, he observes. The rest of their family is waiting for them. Broccoli doesn't have a family, stupid, I reply, 
And my mother tells me not to call my brother stupid, as one does. But the seed has already been planted, taking root in my little brain. I begin to imagine the broccoli as a tiny, adorable clan of parents and children with fuzzy green hair who argue over dumb things but still love each other at the end of the day. Unbelievable, my father mutters in response to something on the news. But I am still pondering the consciousness of plants and cruciferous vegetables. Begrudgingly, I fork more broccoli into my mouth, just in case my brother is right. And when there's only one piece left, he doubles down. Oh, come on, he says, playing to my sympathetic nature. That one's the baby. <laughs> you really going to leave a baby all alone without its family? Listen, he goes on. Can't you hear it? Can't you hear it crying? Mommy, Daddy, where are you? <laughs> Sighing, sick with the taste of it, I eat the last piece of broccoli. I can't believe you just did that, my brother says, looking a little horrified. Did what? I ask him. I can't believe you just ate an entire family of broccoli. You monster. I'm sorry, I scream as I race from the dinner table in tears, racked with guilt, pursued by ethical quandaries too complex for a six-year-old. The Garden of Eden challenges us to reimagine our relationship with our food, with the earth, with all of God's creation. You see, in Eden, everything and everyone lives in complete harmony. Everything is sustainable, a virtuous cycle of endless sustenance where nothing ever runs out and no one ever goes hungry. Adam and Eve are, in a sense, friends with the animals and even with the produce of the garden who are friends with us and each other in Eden. Broccoli does have a family. All of creation is its family. But in more industrialized societies like ours, we are so far removed from nature and the source of our food that we take it all for granted. We've convinced ourselves that we don't belong to our own ecosystem, that nature is something out there, and that concrete and steel and carpeted floors are our natural habitat. We are, as the journalist Robert Jensen once said, a species out of context, divorced from our own origins. Most folks don't know how to hunt or gather or even grow anything. We just go to the store and buy what we need, wrapped in plastic, loaded with preservatives and chemicals and God knows what else. The end result of a long industrial supply chain. I suppose Adam and Eve took their food for granted too. And after they were expelled from Eden, as the old legend goes, food became a lot harder to come by. Cursed is the ground because of you, God tells Adam upon his expulsion from the garden. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth from you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. From out of the ground you were taken. 
That's a stunning comment, a powerful reminder that we, too, like the animals that surround us, like our produce, even our products of the earth, siblings in God's creation, and like any family, we don't always get along. Our relationship with food is complicated, yes, but it's really a bit dysfunctional, if you think about it. By being so far removed from the source, I think that many of us fail to recognize the precarity of our international food supply, which is a lot more vulnerable than we would like to believe. War in Ukraine, drought in California, floods in Pakistan, heat waves in China and India, topsoil erosion here in the Midwest, and severe climate-related disasters all over the world conspire to devastate global breadbaskets, along with the supply chains that get everything to the shelf of your local supermarket. It is a distinct possibility, certainty, some will tell you, that your tomatoes are going to be a lot more expensive in a few years. And plenty of folks might not be able to find one at all. They're already facing a shortage in the UK, along with broccoli, cucumbers, and lettuce. One of their politicians, in the fashion of Marie Antoinette, told everyone to eat turnips instead. You know, if the forbidden fruit in Eden were a turnip, I think we'd all still be in paradise. <laughs> but turnips, inedible as they may be, are the least of our troubles. In the 19th century, an economist named Thomas Malthus predicted that we would eventually run out of food altogether. He wrote, the power of population is so superior to the power of the earth to produce subsistence for man that premature death must in some shape or other visit the human race. The world's population will multiply more rapidly than the available food supply. Now Malthus was proven wrong. In fact, in some ways he got it backwards when the 1970s saw the, large, uh, the rise of large-scale agricultural and factory farming made possible by cheap energy and fertilizers that dramatically expanded our ability to grow food. And when a population experiences an abundance of food, that population tends to grow. Ours exploded as a result if I'm not mistaken, doubling over the last 40 years or so. And that brings new predicaments to the fore. Cattle, notwithstanding, feeding grain and vegetables to 8 billion people requires phosphorus, ammonia, and fertilizers made from fossil fuels. Now, for one thing, those are all finite resources. There's already some concern about a phosphorus shortage, and while oil and natural gas aren't about to run out, we are finding that the uh, more readily available deposits are harder to get to. And you have to spend energy to get that energy. You have to power diesel machinery and whatnot with fuel to reach uh, those deposits. And eventually you begin to see a matter of diminishing returns, at which point profits go down and oil gets left in the ground. Now, that's a good thing theoretically uh, for the climate, not such a good thing uh, for the global food supply. 
Now for uh, another, as I just mentioned, industrial farming produces about a quarter of all carbon emissions. So it's a catch-22, this whole business. You need the fuel to grow the food, but burning the fuel destroys the biosphere and makes it harder to grow food. So given all this, how do we sustainably feed the world? Now on this Earth Sunday, I want to take a moment to celebrate everything that our church has accomplished over the years to become a more sustainable local community. We recycle all of our paper and aluminum. We've reduced waste by installing an industrial grade dishwasher. And thanks to all of you who volunteer to wash those dishes after our large scale events. We've experimented with rain barrels and composting. We've replaced nearly all of our lights in the building with more energy efficient LEDs. And most impressively, I'm excited to say that we've partnered with a local solar farm and 100% of our church's electricity is powered by sunlight. And we're working to do the same with our boiler, exploring heat pumps that will reduce our reliance on natural gas. Now having said all of that, I've been wondering what can be done about food sustainability, which is obviously really important. As supply chains and large-scale agriculture become increasingly precarious, as food becomes more expensive, I think we need to be thinking more locally. I also think that learning to grow some of our own food will be an important and useful skill in the years to come. And so, with the help of our church's green team, we have decided to launch a campaign that we call the Eden Project. Now the idea is actually pretty simple. We're looking, at least to get started, we're looking for at least 30 households who will commit to growing a giving garden on their property and to donate some percentage of the yield to local food pantries and our hungry neighbors, which we will connect you to. The percentage you give is entirely up to you, but we would like to weigh it so that we can track how much our church is growing and giving away. This isn't a one-time thing, but rather a seed that we'd like to plant for the future, an ongoing ministry of the church that reaps a harvest year after year. Now, if you already grow your own vegetables, this should be an easy ask. If not, and you'd like to learn, we have folks who can teach you. If you just don't have enough sunlight in your yard, or if you don't have a yard at all, Maybe you can grow a few veggies or herbs on your balcony or help tend the ambassador garden that we're building on the southern lawn of the church this weekend, which is both symbolic, uh, an example of what we're asking folks to do at home, but will also produce its own food. And if you can't do any of those things, I hope you can at least consider how you might improve your own relationship with creation. You see, the Eden Project is more than just a conveniently biblical name. It's a theological project designed to feed the hungry as Jesus taught us. I was standing uh, at the Dollar Tree the other day looking for uh, something, and I happened to overhear a conversation of a woman talking to an employee there, breaking down in tears, just saying how hard it's been lately to make ends meet, how hard it is just to get food. So I think that feeding one another is an important uh, calling 
God has placed upon us. Beyond that, this project helps us get closer to God's creation, to plant our feet in the grass and our hands in the soil. Now listen, it will come as no surprise to you that I personally know absolutely nothing about gardening. I've never grown a thing in my life. But my wife and I got a raised garden bed for our backyard that we can work on together to be a part of this project, and hopefully I will learn a thing or two. I know that I will learn to appreciate my food like I never have before. So we're going to send uh, an Eden Project digital registration this week. We already have about 10 families signed up, which is awesome. I hope that some more of you will join me uh, in getting to that 30, and then one day 60 or 100, that we might plant a more sustainable future for our community together. Now, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. Wait a minute, sorry, hold on. There we go. <clears throat> this is Bob the Tomato. He does not like to be confused with Bob the Tomato from the VeggieTales children's television show. Unlike this Bob, Bob is a real tomato, okay? He's a real, honest-to-God, heirloom tomato. And he's a survivor. He was harvested by farmers in Guatemala along with a few hundred of his brothers and sisters before being loaded in a truck and taken to a processing facility in Mexico City where he was washed and packaged and sent to a wholesaler in Southern California where he was washed again and repackaged and put on a train bound for the Chicago rail yards. From there, he was loaded onto another truck and delivered to the local Jewel Osco in Glen Ellen, where he was dumped into a bin of other tomatoes that he had never met before. They were a rather unsavory lot, as anyone who's been to the Jewel Osco produce department can attest. And he practically begged me to get him out of there when I walked by on my way to get some bananas. When I saw those eyes, how could I say no? At every stage of his journey, every step of the supply chain, Bob was at risk of being thrown out. Most of his family didn't make it because they were too lumpy or misshapen. According to Feeding America, a national hunger relief charity, over six billion pounds of fresh produce are unharvested or unsold every year. Workers only pick unripened tomatoes, leaving those that ripened early to spoil in the fields. Many more do not make the final cut as packers closely inspect them for imperfections. One study found that a particular farm in Queensland, Australia, was throwing out 90% of their tomato crop simply because they didn't look pretty enough. Yet another study by the USDA has found that even once it reaches the shelf, 31% of all of our food is wasted and thrown out at the retail and consumer level. Friends, I am as guilty of this as anyone, if not more. But we have to stop taking our food along with the rest of creation for granted. I mean, just look at this face. 
and tell me you don't feel a little bit bad about throwing out those tomatoes last week. Brings me back to my childhood. I'm sorry. Maybe anthropomorphizing vegetables is not especially helpful or sane. But we need to reconsider our relationship with the earth to befriend it. If we treat God's creation like a friend, like family, bizarre as that sounds, maybe we will not be so keen to exploit it. And if we can grow our own produce with good soil and sunlight, and water and love, maybe we can build a more sustainable local community. I don't know, friends, that we can find our way back to Eden or if this world will ever be a paradise again. But in the immortal words of Voltaire, we can and must tend our own gardens. Amen.